Welcome to the Faith Pampa Podcast, the podcast teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church in Pampa, Texas, where our fellowship seeks to grow in Christ, manifest love, and make disciples all for the glory of God. My name is Mike Wolfley, and this is episode two of the Faith Pampa Podcast. What is church? Today, as we continue our inaugural series in Being the Image of God, Pastor Dylan Hill will be sharing what the church as a corporate body is supposed to be. He will discuss the need for unity within the church as a proper testimony to the world concerning Christ. He will, however, focus quite a bit more on the purpose of the leadership of the church and how it is to help all the members of the church to do the work of the ministry and be built up in Christ. And now, episode two, What is Church? And if you'll turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16 today. So again, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Just to give you a little bit of context, the book of Ephesians was written as a circular letter to go around to the churches in Asia Minor. This is uh, modern-day Turkey on the western coast there. And uh, we actually have manuscripts of uh, the book of Ephesians that are addressed not to the Ephesians. It's the exact same letter, but addressed to the Laodiceans. So it appears that it's possible that this letter was copied but readdressed to multiple different churches so that it could be handed around circularly to all these other churches, the exact same message to all of them. It's a much more generic letter uh, concerning the theological issues that Paul addresses in chapters 1 through 3 and then the practical issues of church life in chapters 4 through 6. And so we come to chapter 4, and he's shifting from basic theological foundations for his argument into practical responses in the church here at the beginning of chapter 4. So we begin in verse 1 here. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He, al- he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature, stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by the craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Pray and seek the Lord's guidance as we enter into a time of study in His Word. Lord, we give you thanks for this, your Word, that you faithfully recorded through your Apostle Paul and preserved for us to this day that we might study the Word of our God and know the God of the Word. And by it that we might be further conformed to the image of God in Christ and to know you to make you known, Lord. And so today we pray that you would deal bountifully with your slaves, that we may live and keep your word and open our eyes to see wonderful things from your instruction. Holy Spirit, fill our hearts and guide us and teach us, open our eyes, help us to see clearly, 
that we might respond in faithful obedience to you. Lord, I pray for myself that you would speak through me and that I might not speak from the empty arrogance of knowledge, but that you would speak to your people, that they may be built up, equipped, and encouraged to glorify you by making your glory and salvation known to the lost and dying. Bless our time now for your exaltation and your honor. And we pray this all in the blessed name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. So this is a picture of a man named Jean Piaget. He was a developmental psychologist of yesteryear. For those of you who are in the field of education, you might be familiar with this gentleman. Uh, there's no end to the discussions of Piaget in educational circles. Uh, but his whole realm of psychological research dealt with how the human mind develops cognitively in the way it thinks, the way it processes information, etc. And he came upon this idea of something called equilibrium and disequilibrium. And the way this works is essentially as we grow and develop as individuals, uh, we assimilate more and more information. And when we assimilate that information, we add it to what we already know, and we compare it to everything we already know so that the world in which we live makes sense in our minds. And we achieve this thing called equilibrium. Everything we've experienced and know makes sense in the framework of our experience of life. But then new information comes along. And that new information can sometimes conflict in ways with what we think we already know. And it creates what we call disequilibrium or cognitive dissonance is another word for it. The idea being that the new information that I've gotten now messes with my head. It doesn't make sense based on everything I know so far. And now I know this new thing to be true, so now I have to assimilate that new information and make it work with everything else and make everything else work with it because all of it's true, but now I have to adjust what I know to regain equilibrium. And this is a process that we go through from the time we're infants all the way to the grave. It's constant disequilibrium and equilibrium, constantly over and over again as we assimilate more and more information and experiences through life. And today we're, Lord willing, going to have a very similar experience with disequilibrium in our understanding of the church. Because the problem is that in our culture we have an understanding of what church is, not necessarily because someone told you that, but it's because of what you've necessarily experienced. Because, again, equilibrium and disequilibrium can be obtained just by experiencing things, not necessarily by being told certain things. And so as we continue our series in Being the Image of God to Pampa, we're going to look at this question of what is church? What is it supposed to be, and how is it supposed to function? Now, again, I want to caution you that the intention of this particular discussion today is not to teach the entire theology of church. That is literally an entire semester of seminary and entire focus of professors in seminaries about what church is, what it's supposed to be, how it functions, etc. Not to mention all the historical discussions that have happened in the last 2,000 years over what the church is. Today we're going to focus on a very narrow and focused aspect of it that is relevant to our discussion and what it means for our fellowship to be the image of God to Pampa. We're going to need to see that the real purpose of the church is something maybe different than what you're used to. It might be very similar, but you may be required to experience some disequilibrium today. But what you're also going to see is that, biblically speaking, there's no other option. There's no other kind of church to choose from. There is one way that the Scriptures depict what we are supposed to do in being the body of Christ and operating as His image. And today we're going to look at an important discussion found here in Ephesians chapter 4 on this particular issue, looking at these specific problems. So again, having laid out a bunch of theological issues in chapters 1 through 3 here in Ephesians, Paul comes to chapter 4 and begins dealing with more specific practical responses to what he's laid out in chapters 1 through 3. And so we're going to come back to our text here, beginning in verse 1. We're going to walk through our text first, then we'll talk about kind of the implications for us as a fellowship. So essentially the idea is this, that Paul was urging the churches in Asia Minor to be joined in loving unity, especially since they had leaders graced with the responsibility to equip them for the work of the ministry and to be matured in the likeness of Christ. So the first thing Paul does in section 1 through 6 is urging them to loving unity. 
He begins in verses 1 through 3 by focusing on a specific set of issues. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Here, the calling he's speaking of is the calling to the faith, calling to salvation. Not a particular calling to a vocation, but rather a calling to salvation. And it's a, it's a high calling, this calling to represent Jesus. It is a very high calling. Dare I say, it is the highest calling to represent Jesus. And so he says to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. And then he begins to describe what that looks like. Walking in verse 2 with humility. Now this looks two ways. Humility before God. They were to understand that God is an awesome, holy, and mighty God, and they're not. That they were sinners, weak, and in need of His grace. They needed to humble themselves before the Lord and be able to have some perspective with regard to who they are versus who their God is. But also a humility toward one another. The humility that counts others as more important than yourself. Not counting yourself to be of high status or to be important in the fellowship, but to be a servant. He then says for them to be gentle, to show gentleness toward one another. The reality is that when we're dealing with people that are not like us, which is everybody, we're going to run into conflicts. We're going to run into difficulties. We're going to run into issues. And that's okay. But as we do so, we need to do so with gentleness, not being harsh with one another. They were called to be gentle with one another as they engaged in this thing of becoming more unified, becoming more like Jesus, to give people the benefit of the doubt, to be gentle with one another in the sense of watching them go through their struggles and helping them through that with a tender hand. Further, he says to be patient. Your translation might have uh, endurance, long-suffering, these sorts of terminologies. Uh, the idea is that as we are dealing with one another, we have patience with one another. Realizing that some people are going to be struggling to understand certain things, and they're not going to see it as clearly as you do, and being patient as they get to that point. Or when you're struggling, again, in a conflict, being patient for that to be handled properly to be dealt with. Now, not just throwing it off to the side and doing nothing about it, but being patient in it's how it's handled. And dealing with people's growth. The reality is that we will always be dealing with believers who are less mature than ourselves and need to be patient and long-suffering with them is necessary. And then he also says to bear with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love that all time as we go through this process, we should have a genuine and deep love for one another. In fact, one of the reasons why this was so important for Paul in this context is that Christ specifically said, they will know that you are my followers because of your love. But then oftentimes we forget that there's a little phrase at the end of that sentence, which is your love for one another. They will know that you are my disciples for your love for one another. And so the idea that we need to be showing love to one another in the fellowship is very important because it is a testimony to those outside of who we belong to and who they belong to. And then he finishes off this really interesting phrase that I, I, I love. Uh, he says, eager to maintain the unity, or uh, perhaps another translation would be hastening to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. If you could imagine sort of, I, I, I know the word reckless is getting thrown around a lot, but... Um, and perhaps that's not a great word to use, but going headlong into seeking unity, being eager, being just chomping at the bit, perhaps would be a good way to say that, to run after unity in the Spirit. That tends not to be the thing that we are eager for in the church. And I'm sure it was the case in Ephesus as well that people were not eager to run toward unity, they were eager to run toward conflicts. Not because they enjoy conflict, but that's what sin does. It makes us run headlong into conflict. And so he's saying, no, that is not our attitude. That is not what we do. He asks them to run headlong into seeking unity in the Spirit in the bond of peace. And we looked at this last week, that when Christ calls us out, he calls us to be people who bring peace to chaos. The church should not be a place of chaos. It should be a place of peace and order. And so he calls them to that as well, to be unified in the Spirit and the bond of peace.
So you get the idea of how they should be interacting with one another. And this should, theoretically, be pushing them toward further unity. Because if we're being humble, if we're being gentle, if we're being patient, if we're bearing with one another in love, if we're hastening toward unity in the bond of peace, then this is going to create a fellowship that is unified, all going in the same direction. Does that mean conflicts don't arise? Absolutely not, but they're dealt with in a way that brings unity, not conflict. And then beginning in verse 4, he begins to talk about what this unity actually looks like. Essentially, if this is the case, if this is the unity we need to have, you need to understand the reason why is because there is one body. He wanted him to understand there was one body of the church. There wasn't another church for them to go to. Now understand, in our context, yes, I know there's other churches to go to, other denominations, what have you. That's not what he's saying. There is one body of Christ. It's not like there's another body of Christ out there, another kind of church out there that's more to your liking. There is only one. There's one spirit that we all have, that we all share in Christ, that they all shared in Christ. There wasn't another Holy Spirit for them to go to that was more to their liking. That a Holy Spirit that only dwelled in people that were people they liked. There was no option. There's only one Holy Spirit. And just as they were called, in one hope of their calling, there's only one point of hope that they had, only one kingdom to which they could look forward to, only one deliverance that they could look forward to. There's not another one. There's one Lord, Jesus. There's not another Jesus that they can look to and say, well, this Jesus is more to my liking. There was only one Jesus that they were all unified under. One faith. Only one faith to be placed in, trusted in, in Christ. There's no other faith to have. There's no other trust to have but in Christ. There's not another thing to trust in that's more to your liking. One baptism that baptizes and unites us in Christ. There's only one baptism. There's not some other baptism that baptizes you into something that's more to your liking. It is what it is, whether you like it to be or not. One God, the only deity that we serve. We all serve one God. This was an interesting concept that Muhammad caught on to later on in Arabia in the 6th and 7th centuries. What he saw in Arabia was the divisions and the violence between the warring tribes because they all served different gods. But he saw the unity in the Jewish community, saw the unity in the Christian community because of the singular deity which they served. And so part of the development here of Islam is also this development of monotheism to unite the Arab tribes, to end the wars. Because what he understood was when you serve the same god, it immediately should eliminate a significant amount of conflict. And that's what Paul was explaining here. Also that he's one father over all. There is no other father that they could go to that's more to their liking. He's the father of all. Sort of like when you have siblings that you don't get along with. It's not like they are part of another family. They are part of the same family as you are, and you have to reconcile with that reality. But then he goes further to say he is the one father of all who is over all. That is, he is sovereign over all. He gets to now decide for the Ephesians and the other churches during this time. He gets to decide what their lives are and what their lives are not. He is the sovereign Lord over them. They no longer get to self-determine. He is through all. He is working through all his people. One of the things that they had to reconcile was there may be brothers and sisters that I really just get on my nerves, but they are genuinely in Christ, and God is genuinely working through them, and I cannot deny them. This is one thing that I think uh, happens in the arrogance of modern churches. We look back at the people of the Reformation or earlier and we invalidate the genuineness of their faith because, well, they were ignorant to this, and now we know this, that, or the other. And somehow that invalidates their faith, which was genuine, that God was actually working through them. For instance, do I think that Martin Luther got it all right? No. 
But did God work through him to accomplish a very significant change in the church that needed to happen? Absolutely. And when we come up on Reformation Sunday in October, we're going to be talking about that. But just because I disagree with him on those points doesn't mean that God did not work in valid ways through him, through a man who had a valid and true faith in Christ. He's also in all. He indwells all of his people. They needed to understand that he was in all of them. They couldn't look at another brother and sister and say, well, God's not in them. He's in me, but he's not in them. He couldn't, they couldn't do that because he was one father who was in all of them. They shared that indwelling. And so they were supposed to be striving for loving unity because they had been joined in the bonds of unity found in the almighty God of creation. And then Paul goes on to explain, beginning in verse 7, the implications of this particular reality. They're unified in all these things, but because they're unified then, they can begin to reap the benefits of what he has accomplished. Now, uh, he is going to speak here about gifts of roles that have been given to those in the church. His focus is very narrow today. Uh, when we get into 1 Corinthians, Lord willing, we will talk more about more roles and more giftings that are given within the fellowship of the church. But he's focusing on a very specific group of people today, and for our purposes, for a very good reason, we're going to look at these. So beginning in verse 7, he begins to explain that the Lord had given grace to the fellowship in order to help them be equipped and to achieve maturity in Christ. So the basis of this grace of gifting was found in the fact that Christ had descended to the earth and gave gifts to men prior to his ascension. The idea being that he's given roles to these people. So we look in verse 8. Uh, this is a quote from the uh, psalm that Tim read from uh, earlier, Psalm 68, that he descended and gave gifts to men, as he reads in verse 9 here. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, specifically the earth, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fulfill all things. Now, what he did when he came was to give specific roles and works to specific individuals for the building up of the body of Christ and toward the maturity of the fellowship. And so specifically, he begins to look at, in verse 11, particular roles that he has graced particular individuals with in order to serve that function. So... In that time, he gave some as apostles. Now, there's two ways to understand what he means here. He either means the 13 apostles who were commissioned by him, who served with him, and then went out into the nations to proclaim the gospel. And only those 13. I say 13. I know you've always heard 12, but bear with me. Judas dies. He's replaced by Matthias, so that's 12 still. But then Paul comes along, and he's also accounted as an apostle, so there's 13 total. Or it could mean something akin to church planters. The idea being these are people who go out into nations where there is not church. They go out and proclaim the gospel, establish the church well there, get them set up and ready to go, and then they leave. They check in on them. They help them when they need help. But ultimately, they leave the indigenous peoples to run the fellowship in a way that's meaningful within their context. I'll be perfectly honest with you. I'm not convinced one way or the other right this two seconds. Um, it is a very difficult uh, thing to figure out. Um, there's no small amount of discussion had on this subject. But nonetheless, the idea was that the role of apostle, either way you look at it, was for these men to go out and help start the church, equip people properly, and establish them well within their context to be able to lead it in their own context in a meaningful way. Some were given as prophets. These are people who not only speak the future, in other words, foretell the future, but there are also people who forth-tell the Word of God. This is a term that was uh, potentially coined by one of my professors at Dallas Seminary, um, where he spoke of the idea of the prophet speaking the Word of God into the particular situation of a particular church or fellowship in a very authoritative way that's very different than a pastor necessarily coming in and just giving a sermon. There, it's almost as though there's this declaration from the Lord of you need to hear clearly that what I'm saying from the Word applies in this circumstance we're dealing with specifically right here within our fellowship. Now, again, 
these were prophets in their times. Are there still prophets today in this context? This is something we'll discuss again when we come to 1 Corinthians, Lord willing. Um, I am of the mind that it is possible. Um, I have never run into a legitimate prophet. So just be aware of that, although I, I find it potentially legitimate that we still have prophets in the church today who can foretell the Word of God into people's situations um, and potentially foretell. Uh, it's possible. I've just never run into a legitimate one. And anytime we run into someone who's claiming to be a prophet, I would encourage you to put them through the Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18 test. If they prophesy and it does not come true, they're a false prophet. End of discussion. If they prophesy, and it does come true, but they teach false teachings, they're still a false prophet. So we need to put them through those tests. Those are very important. But nonetheless, the Lord gave people to be prophets for the building up of the body of Christ. Again, we'll see this more when we come to 1 Corinthians. Uh, he gave some as evangelists, people who would go around, and their job was simply to plant and sow the seed here, to just cast out the message of the gospel amongst the peoples. It sort of lays the foundation for the apostles who then come through later on and help to really establish the church after people have come to trust in Christ. But these people are traveling around, sharing the gospel in various communities and going forth. And then finally, he comes to pastors and teachers. Now, uh, it is a very well-established Greek grammatical form that when you have the sort of formation we have here with pastors and teachers, they're talking about one type of individual, not two. In fact, when you study Greek in seminary and they talk about this construction, this is the example they use as the par excellence. This is the perfect example of this. In other words, they are pastor-teachers. They are pastors who are teachers. They're teachers who are pastors. There's one individual being looked at here. In other words, they're people who would serve as the shepherds of the church, but the expectation is they were also teachers. In fact, that's one of the qualifications for an elder is that he be a capable teacher. And if he's not a capable teacher, then he's not fully qualified to be an elder. That is one of the qualifications for eldership. And also, by the way, one of the qualifications for eldership here at Faith Bible Church. But these people are responsible for shepherding the people, for caring for them, for preaching the word, teaching, guiding them, and instructing them. And all four of these people, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers, they were all to be working toward a very specific goal. They have a very specific job, and that is to equip the saints. That is their work. That is their ministry. That is their purpose. And encompassed in what Paul is saying here is the full purpose for which these people go forward. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry and for the building up of the body of Christ. That is their job. When I am serving in the capacity as a pastor, when Craig or Guy or Worley or Doc, and DA has done this in the past, serve in this capacity, our job is for equipping the saints for the work of the ministry and the building up of the body of Christ. That is our job. And that was the job of these people in this time. So let's break this down a little more. For the work of the ministry, the idea was this. These apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers would come into the context of the church, the fellowship of the church there in Ephesus, Laodicea, all these other community churches. And bear in mind, during their time, there's only one church. I mean, there's no other, there's not like first Laodicean church and then second Laodicean church. There was none of that. It was just one fellowship. And when they went to these fellowships to do this equipping, they were first of all there to help them to be equipped for the work of the ministry. I want to be very clear about this. When these four types of people were serving in these capacities, they were not the ones who were supposed to be doing the ministerial work. The congregation was. The expectation was the People were equipped to do the work of the ministry, to go out and tell people about Jesus, to go out and build loving and sacrificial relationships with people so that spiritual conversations were normal and sharing the gospel was very natural. It was the responsibility of the people to go and do that. Now, did that mean that these four people weren't doing that also? No, they, they were obviously doing that. But when they served in the capacity of apostle, prophet, evangelist, or pastor, teacher, it was their job merely to equip. Then the fellowship was supposed to go out and do it. 100% of the Christ-professing believers in the fellowship were supposed to go out and do the work. 
That was the expectation. But further, they were there to build up the body of Christ, and specifically to build it up in very particular ways. Now, Paul speaks of this in a little bit of a different language than what we've looked at so far, but it's essentially the same idea. Uh, first of all, he says that they are supposed to be working toward the unity of the faith. He goes there in verse 13 and says very specifically that they are to attain to the unity of the faith, that they're to be equipped until the point where they attain the unity of faith. I assure you the unity of the faith is always under attack. And therefore, there's always a need to continue this equipping for the unity of the faith. A unity which he's already spoken of at the beginning of this passage. And so he goes on to say that there's also this knowledge of the Son of God. Now, knowledge of the Son of God in this context is not just knowing about Jesus. It wasn't that they were going to their Sunday school classes, which didn't exist at the time, by the way. Um, they weren't going to their Sunday school classes and just learning about Jesus and then just leaving. Oh, I've got a lot of great knowledge about Jesus. That is not what he's getting at here. In fact, he goes on to explain quite a bit more what he means. Unto complete manhood, and manhood in the generic sense, this includes women as well. The whole idea is to be completely what man was intended to be, to be completely what men and women were supposed to be, which as we looked at last week was to be the image of God to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, to look as fully like Christ as possible. That was the goal. He wanted them to look like Jesus. That's what knowing Jesus is like, is being like him. More and more like him. Because if you think about it, as we learn more and more, say, about our spouse, then we know them. Sure. But when we start looking like a person, acting like a person, talking like a person, we know them on quite a bit of different level. I'm not saying that that's how you should be interacting with your spouse or not. I'm just saying if you actually start looking like a particular individual, acting like a particular individual, speaking like them, you understand them at a different level than you do just having some sort of knowledge about a particular individual. And same thing here with Christ. As we're conformed more and more and more to his image, there is a sense of knowing Jesus in a way that is far beyond just simple cognitive understanding. But he goes on to say there's further purpose to this. And the first thing he says is that they're no longer tossed about or carried about by false teaching. He was concerned for them, as well he should be, because there was plenty of false teaching to go around even in Paul's day. He was concerned that they properly understand the truth about Jesus so that they would not be carried off by false teachings and the craftiness of men. Because let me assure you, there are a lot of crafty people in the world, and they will try to take you astray. But the idea was, if they knew the truth about Jesus, then they wouldn't be carried along by the false teaching. And then he says, rather they should be speaking the truth in love, first of all, which is very important because it's not just an issue of knowing the right things about Jesus. It's about proclaiming the truth about Jesus in love. In other words, I don't just go tell unbelievers about the truth about Jesus and tell other brothers and sisters about the truth about Jesus just so I can look intelligent or just so that they could check a box off that they had done what they were supposed to do. The idea was that I genuinely care about you, and that I genuinely care about the lost and dying, and that's why I'm speaking the truth to them. And so he asked them to speak the truth in love, so they can grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Again, working toward this maturity of looking like Jesus. This last phrase is, is very difficult translation, but we're just going to stick with the ESV today for the sake of ease. Uh, it is a little tricky, but essentially the idea is this. From whom, beginning in verse 16, specifically from Jesus, from Jesus the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. In other words, held together by all those who are serving for the equipping of the body of Christ for its work, held together by its members in unity, when each part is working properly, when everybody's doing what they're supposed to be doing, 
Not only the evangelists, the apostles, the prophets, or the pastor teachers, everybody unified doing what they're supposed to be doing, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It continues to grow in maturity and continued likeness in Christ so that it can better represent him to the lost and dying. And so the Lord gave these individuals specifically within the fellowship for building up the body of Christ, for equipping them for the work of the ministry and maturity in Christ as well, looking more and more like Jesus. Again, Paul was urging the churches in Asia Minor to be joined in loving unity, especially since they had leaders graced with the responsibility to equip them for the work of the ministry and to be matured in the likeness of Christ. So again, these people were specifically put in place to help them be prepared to do the work. Not that they did the work themselves. Their job was to prepare the people to do the work. Though again, they were obviously doing the work themselves. And to be matured in the likeness of Christ so that everybody in the fellowship looked increasingly more and more like Jesus. And so what are the implications for our context? The body of Christ, his church, is to be joined in loving unity, particularly since we have individuals graced with the responsibility to equip us for the work of the ministry and to be matured in the likeness of Christ. Now, the reason this sounds almost identical to the previous one is because applicability in this second half of Ephesians is very direct. And so we're just going to carry this right over into our situation. We are to be joined in loving unity especially since we have leaders who have been put in place here to help us obtain that unity and to be matured in Christ and to be equipped for the work of the ministry. But before we dive off further into that, I do want to do a little bit of review from last week for those of you who were not able to join us. Uh, we need to remember again that Lord created man to bring him glory by being his image, his representative, his vice regent in his creation to bring light, peace, and life. But due to the marring of the image of God because of the corruption of sin and death, the only true and faithful image of the invisible God is Jesus the Christ alone. Therefore, in Christ alone we see what man was meant to be. In the Hebrew Scriptures, all men are the image of God, but then clearly marred by sin and death. In the New Testament, where Christ is the only unique image of God, men are the image of God only insofar as they are redeemed and alive in Christ and conformed to the image of Jesus by his grace alone. And so the singular, solitary purpose of the Christian, of all of us, is to glorify God by further advancing the good news of Jesus, his true image, making known the light of Christ to those in darkness, the peace of Christ to those in chaos, and the life of Christ to those in death. That is our single, solitary purpose. Nothing is more important. Nothing should be taking precedent over that in your life. And by the way, it is not simply an add-on to what you do in your life. It is the sole focus. And if it's not, it should be. It's not something you just add on to the rest of your life and your daily goings about. It should be your full and complete focus. And of course, we're going to talk about what this looks like, very practically speaking, particularly in the next three weeks. But for right now, let's focus in on the fellowship and the structure of our church here and how things work. I'm going to do this in a little bit of reverse order for us. I want you to understand what the purpose of our leadership here is at Faith Bible Church. When I say the leadership, I mean two groups of people. Well, three, technically. Uh, first, the elders who serve as pastors, teachers. I need you all to understand and hear me clearly on this. Faith Bible Church has more than one pastor. I want to be very clear about this. It is incredibly disrespectful and biblically wrong, in my humble opinion, to call someone an elder and not see them as a pastor, or to have a pastor and not call them an elder makes no sense biblically. We have more than one pastor here. Craig, Guy, Doc, Worley, and technically still DA, who is a blessing of wisdom to us. All of us are pastor teachers. We are here to teach, equip, and encourage, and build you up. That's our job. 
equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up the body of Christ. Another group, the deacons, their responsibility, or right now the deacon, responsibility is to lead the fellowship in that service. Again, as I like to mention, shepherds do have little crooks on the end of their shepherd staff, but they also have a goad on the other end. And it's to push and to lead in the service of the church and to give you the understanding you need and the equipping you need to be able to properly serve those out in the community as well. And then, of course, there's the leadership that is our leadership ministries, those who are leading in the leadership ministry of discipleship, in worship, and in the mercy ministry. All of those are leading as well. They are leading us and guiding us along. But primarily, we're going to focus today upon the elders and what their job is. Again, it's for equipping the saints for the work of the ministry and the building up of the body of Christ. Again, I want to be very clear about this. When we are serving in the capacity of pastor-teacher, we are not the ones who are doing the work. You are. Not us. Our job is to equip you for that work. You go do it. Each and every one of you. Now, does that mean that we're not doing it? Absolutely not. Obviously, we are. That's not the point. But when we serve in the capacity of pastor-teachers, our job in the body of Christ is to give you the tools you need to go do the work yourself. Who should be the chief evangelist of a church? The pastors, absolutely. But absolutely everyone in this fellowship has a responsibility and a call to represent Christ and make his glory and salvation known. That's our job is to equip you for that work. Are you feeling less than confident doing that? That's okay. That's our job, is to help you feel more confident. And if we're not, you need to tell us how we can make you feel more confident. It's okay if you don't feel confident in that. That's, our, that's why we're here. It's like a teacher walking into a classroom and expecting all the students to know everything. No, your job is to teach them. And so one of the things that we also do is build up the body of Christ to help you look more like Jesus. If you look more like Jesus, I assure you that doing the work out there is going to be a lot easier significantly easier. So there are four things that we do as leaders. First of all, we teach orthodoxy. Uh, for those of you who enjoy your pastoral alliteration, we are going to be doing a lot of O words today. Uh, we're going to be teaching orthodoxy. What is orthodoxy? Orthodoxy is right teaching. There is a core of Christian teaching, and depending upon how you group them one way or the other, there's different numbers. It just depends upon who you talk to. But those core teachings are non-negotiable. Once we tell you what those teachings are, how they work, you have no option but to believe those things. Otherwise, you are holding to heresy. And that is very dangerous. Now, that's not a ton of doctrines, but there are some critical ones that are non-negotiable. It's our job as leaders to teach you those things. We will also then teach you the next layer out, which is the important things by all means. But we can't get wrapped up in things that aren't essential because that will create conflict within the fellowship. But our job is to teach you what that orthodoxy is. Uh, my favorite example of this is in uh, the Secret Service. They don't teach them what all the different counterfeit bills look like. They teach them what the real bill looks like so when they encounter a fake one in the world outside, they know immediately that it's not a real bill. Same thing with our teaching. We teach you what the true faith is, so that way when you encounter the false ones out and about, you'll immediately know that's wrong, because I know that's against true teaching. So we teach orthodoxy. We also teach orthopraxy, not a word we tend to hear very much in the church. Orthopraxy means right practice. How do we properly represent Jesus in the way we walk, the way we speak, the way we feel, the way we think? How do we rightly do that? And there are right ways to do that, and there are wrong ways to do that, absolutely. So we teach orthodoxy, we teach orthopraxy, we maintain order. It is not only our responsibility to maintain order in the meeting of the fellowship during this time, but to maintain order in the carrying out of the mission of the church, to set the mission standards, to enact discipline when necessary, to manage the finances properly and with good stewardship. The list goes on. We have many things that we have to do in order to maintain the order of the fellowship. This is not a place for chaos. 
So we teach orthodoxy, we teach orthopraxy, we maintain order, and we also administer the ordinances. Now I should say, nothing in the scripture says that uh, uh, just everybody within the fellowship who is genuinely in Christ cannot administer the, the ordinances. Um, however, that being said, it is the responsibility of the elders to ensure that the, the practice of the ordinances is being done in a respectful way, is being done properly, and being done in an orderly way. And the two ordinances that we practice are the Lord's table and baptism. Uh, I encourage fathers whose children come to know Christ to baptize their own children. Um, that was a blessing that I had with my two oldest ones, and Lord willing, with my youngest soon, um, to be able to baptize them. There's nothing that says that can't be done, but it is the responsibility of the elders to ensure that that is being done properly and in an orderly fashion that honors God. And by doing all these things, we are helping to equip you all for the work of the ministry and for building you up in the likeness of Christ. Please remember, for the church, the 80-20 rule does not apply. 20% of the people don't do 80% of the work and vice versa. 100% of the people do 100% of the work. That's the way it works or it doesn't. There's no other option. There's no other model given us in the scriptures. And so we come to the work of the fellowship, what you all are supposed to be doing. Again, within the fellowship, we should be exhibiting love toward one another, being unified with one another, and also being firm in our convictions of the truth, but also to speak the truth in love to one another, so that as we are gathered together, we are built up one with another, we're equipped, we're encouraged, so that we can properly go out and do the work of making Christ known which again, we'll spend more time breaking down, Lord willing, in the next three weeks. It means that you are responsible for growing in Christ, taking some responsibility for your growth. Obviously, your growth, which we'll talk about next week, Lord willing, is found in the grace of Christ. But what does it look like to interact with that grace and grow in the likeness of Christ? What does it look like to manifest love in sacrificially loving relationships with those who don't know Jesus? What does it look like to make disciples? We're going to talk about all these things. But here's the catch. We have to decide as a fellowship that we're all going to be united in that effort. That all of us are going to take responsibility for either getting comfortable with doing it, being properly equipped to do so, and taking advantage of the tools that you have available for you here, and taking some initiative, the entire fellowship must choose to participate. I will assure you with where we are at as a fellowship, we cannot afford for one person to say, no, I'm not, I'm not into that. That's not what I come to church for. Um, if you're coming to church for something else, I don't know what kind of church you think that you're going to because this is the only model we have is the leaders equip everyone to do the work. It's not an option. This is church. And so how do we respond to this? Well, first of all, again, we are to be unified as a body, unified as a people to go and do the work. We are one body of the church. We are indwelt by one Holy Spirit. We have one hope of our calling, deliverance in Christ. We have one Lord Jesus who demands everything from us, nothing held back one faith placed in Jesus, one baptism that unites us, one God whom we serve, one Father who is over all of you. He is sovereign and Lord over every bit of your life. You no longer get to decide for yourself what your life is going to be about, what you are going to do, what you are going to choose to do with your time. It is the Lord's to decide, not you, not me. Nobody except Jesus. He is working through all of us. And that means that all of us can be worked through and should be worked through. And he's indwelling all of us. We have to share the same vision and be going to the same place. The place that the Lord is leading us all in this fellowship. So hear me when I describe this to you. 
The church of Jesus Christ is the covenant community of the Lord in Christ whose singular purpose is to glorify the Lord by equipping, encouraging, and building up its members to complete maturity in the image of God in Christ to make the light, peace, and life of our great God known. The church is not a social club. It is only social in the sense of it being a community. It's not a group therapy session. It's not a moral teaching group. It's not a social justice organization, and it's not a political organization either. Instead, the church is driven to lovingly be unified and equipped, encouraged, and built up into maturity into the fullness of the image of Christ to make the glory and salvation of our God known. So if you're seeking community, you're in the right place, absolutely. But understand that if we truly believe what the Scriptures say about Jesus, then the only way you will get genuine community here is by trusting in Christ and His work on your behalf. Otherwise, you will not have the genuine community that is found in the church. If you are brokenhearted, you're in the right place. Absolutely. But if we are going to believe what the Scriptures truly say about Jesus, then we need to understand that the only way your heart's going to be mended is by trusting in the person and work of Jesus. If you're interested in truth, then you're in the right place. But if we are going to believe what the Scriptures say about Jesus, then we need to understand that truth is proclaimed in love. Truth has to have a purpose. It has to have a drive. It has to have a direction, which is to lovingly care for those who are in falsehood, because that falsehood leads to death. If you're lost, you're in the right place. But because we believe what we believe in the Scriptures, the only way you're going to be found is if you decide to trust in the person and work of Jesus. And so, as a church, when we come here, it's not just to make people feel better about their lives until they can manage to get out and go back to their lives and manage it all themselves. That's not what we're here for. We're dealing with life and death every day in this place. Eternal life and death. We cannot, not one of us, can choose to say, I'm not really into that church thing. I'd, I'd prefer to just come and sit and, and do nothing. It's not an option. Understand that we will be pushing. Understand that when you meet with our elders, and I'm not saying when you're in the middle of a trauma or you're in the middle of a hardship and you're seeking pastoral counseling, but when you meet with our elders just over coffee or a meal just to catch up, they're going to ask you, how are you growing in Christ? How are you manifesting love? How are you making disciples? And how can I help you with all three of those? How can I be praying for you in all three of those? You're going to get challenged. Just understand that that is coming. Because we all have to be unified in the purpose that is clearly declared in God's word. There's no other option. There's no other way this works. The body of Christ, his church, is to be joined in loving unity particularly since we have individuals graced with the responsibility to equip us for the work of the ministry and to be matured in the likeness of Christ. And by the way, I should mention, when I say equip us, I mean me too. I listen to other pastors and teachers as well, and I learn incredible things. Some of you may be aware that as I prepared the last week's message, that I had it all prepared on the Wednesday before, and I went to Amarillo on the way back, I listened to a message from a man I respect very much, and he totally destroyed my sermon, and I spent all Saturday night re-editing my message. Understand, it happens to me too. I've got to be equipped. I've got to be matured. I've got to be refined. All of us do. We all have that responsibility. So we want you to understand the purpose of the church, what we're doing here and what it's for, what it is and what it is not. And I realize that this might be shocking for some of you because you've either been told or trained by circumstances in the evangelical culture to think that it's very different than what I've just described. The carpet may feel like it just got pulled out from under you. But understand that my intention is simply to help you see biblically 
what the church is supposed to be so that we can fulfill that purpose in the city of Pampa. If you're using a device in a way that it's not meant to be used, don't expect it to work. The same goes for the church. It was not intended to function as a therapy session or a social group. It wasn't intended for that. It was intended to equip people for the work of the ministry and to build them up in the likeness of Christ so that they can make the glory and salvation of our God known to the lost and dying. That's what it's meant for. If you're not interested in this, I have no other options for you. This is what the church is. And this is what you can expect if you're here. You'll either have to accept that or be part and be part of it, or know, frankly, that you are not living in obedience to your God, that you're rebelling against his purpose for the church. Because this is the expectation. And that too may be very shocking, but again, there's really no other option. So in closing, I would just say this. Consider well the words that I've spoken to you today and pray deeply over them because you have a decision to make for the unity of the fellowship and the work that it's supposed to be doing. Don't ignore them. It would be very easy to walk out of here and just ignore what I said today. Again, we deal with life and death here. So come follow Jesus in what you and I were meant to be, the image of God in Christ, so we can represent his glory and salvation to our community. So the lost and dying who are out there right now, destined for eternal separation and death, can know Jesus and find light, peace, and life in him. May God add his blessings to the preaching of his word for the building up of the body of Christ. That again, we may be the image of God in Christ to make his glory and salvation known to the lost and dying. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks and praise that you have operated in such a way as to, again, include us in the work you are doing to make you known. That you have chosen broken, lost, awful sinners to make known the love and grace and mercy of our great, good, and holy God. And Lord, we pray as a church, not simply here at Faith Bible Church, but as the body of Christ, we confess to you we have not done as we should at times, representing you as we should, being unified as we should. And we pray for your forgiveness, Lord. But we do come before you, and by your grace alone, we repent and commit ourselves to turning from this sin, to be unified in the effort you've given us to make you known to this community that the God of all creation would be praised and glorified in Pampa. Lord, help us to be faithful to the task that you've set before us and to be obedient to you. Lord, I do pray especially for the pastor, elder, teachers here at Faith Bible Church, that you would grant them grace and mercy to be built up so that they can faithfully equip, encourage, and build up the body of Christ to equip for the work of the ministry to make you known, and that they would do so with grace and love and compassion, but with a sense of urgency as well. Have mercy on us, Lord, as leaders to shepherd your people where you are taking them and to lead them in what you desire them to do. Lord, we exalt and glorify your name, and we pray this all in the blessed name of Jesus the Christ, our great shepherd. Amen. All right, so. <clears throat> Pastor Dylan, we often see in so many churches that the members expect their leaderships to essentially do the work of the ministry while they simply attend worship services, classes, seminars, and small groups. Why has this perception continued to be perpetuated? This is definitely something that we have observed in the fellowship of the church for a very long time in church history. I think this misperception comes from a variety of issues. I think individuals within the church fundamentally do not understand what the church is supposed to be, biblically speaking. Out of pure and honest ignorance or out of intentional purpose, they have so often decided that the institution of the church is simply there to serve as either a social club, a group therapy session, or a social justice institution. This in turn means they generally expect the leadership to be responsible for all of that work. 
but this is not how the church is supposed to function. But I think pastors and teachers have also perpetuated this through their own willingness to not hold the fellowship accountable for their own work, which the Lord has prepared for them to do. We have all been equipped by the Holy Spirit to do particular works within the fellowship, and it is absolutely necessary that we fulfill those purposes as a whole people. And this obviously means being properly equipped to do that work. Yeah, it is absolutely the responsibility of the pastors and teachers to equip the fellowship for their work. This means not only teaching the why of what the church is, but also the how of its work in Christ. Well, we will continue our series in Being the Image of God in our next episode, Growing in Christ. We hope you can join us. Thank you for listening to the Faith Pampa Podcast, the podcast teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church in Pampa, Texas. We hope you can join us again. For more information on Faith Bible Church, you can visit our website at www.faithpampa.org. We hope that this time has grown you in Christ and helped you to know how better to manifest the love of God and to make disciples all for His glory.